Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. You have probably heard about the dispute in the South China Sea, and if you have heard about it, you are probably vaguely aware, as I was, that it involved disputed territorial claims between China and its neighbors, and that in defense of American allies in the region, the U.S. Navy is positioning military assets in the area. On this episode, we go a bit deeper into this dispute, its origins and broader global implications, of which there are many. On the line to discuss it all is Gregory Poling, a fellow with the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and we kick off discussing a case that the Philippines has brought against China at an international court of arbitration, the result of which is expected very soon. As always, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives, get in touch with me, subscribe on iTunes. And if you're a regular listener, you know what I'm about to ask you to do. Please, please do consider leaving a review on iTunes. It really does help increase the visibility of the podcast in the eyes of people who are searching for foreign policy-related podcasts on iTunes. Also, share it with your friends, colleagues, family members, anyone else you think might be interested in in-depth conversations about topical and timeless foreign policy issues. And now here is Gregory Poling of CSIS. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Philippines brought this case against China uh, in 2013. Uh, it is an arbitral tribunal within the Hague, within the Permanent Court of Arbitration. Um, although ba- basically it's not it's not for arbitration; it's an ad hoc tribunal that gets to use their facilities, and it's formed under the authority of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is arguably the most widely accepted and respected and ratified treaty uh, that the international community has ever signed both Manila and China included. Uh, That treaty, which is often referred to as the Constitution of the Oceans, uh, determines what each nation gets off their shore. So every country basically gets a 12-mile territorial sea, a 200-nautical-mile exclusive economic zone in which uh, they have exclusive rights to all resources of the sea, mostly meaning fish, and then a continental shelf. So they get uh, all resources to the, the seabed, meaning mostly oil and gas and mining. Uh, in the South China Sea, which is a semi-enclosed sea, um, as the name would imply, the south of China, uh, Beijing has made a claim uh, wildly uh, in violation of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, basically, it claims everything out to a thousand miles or so uh, from the southern coast of China as its waters in one form or another and never quite tells people what exactly it's claiming, but that overlaps 
enormously with the exclusive economic zones and kind of shells, et cetera, of the Southeast Asian countries around that sea. Vietnam, the, the, Philippines. the Philippines, right, which is bringing right, this case. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, there is there is a whole other dispute over the actual islands and rocks and reefs in the South China Sea. So you have a territorial dispute over which this UN Convention on the Law of the Sea has nothing to say. Um, it does not touch on issues of territorial sovereignty. And then you have a maritime dispute, which is over resources and rights in the waters and the, and the seabed. That's what the Philippines has brought this case to do. Um, the big question is, does China's maritime claim, the so-called nine-dash line, so-called because it's just nine dashes drawn on a map, does that meet the requirements of a maritime claim, uh, claim under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea? And then there are a whole bunch of additional questions on specific actions China's taken, specific uh, things that it's claiming in maritime entitlement it's claiming from its reefs and its rocks and its islands. Uh, but the heart of the case is, do we all have to base our claims on this convention we signed, or does China get to make a special claim that nobody else in the world can? So it's my understanding that um, this uh, arbitration will be decided very soon, as, as you said earlier, but also that China has not necessarily um, pledged to abide by its final ruling. Right. Beijing has maintained since the day that the Philippines brought the case that it will not uh, recognize the jurisdiction of the tribunal. It will not abide by the outcome of the ruling, uh, which is uh, legally uh, doesn't hold much water. I mean, the, the, this is binding dispute resolution. Both states agreed to do it when they signed the treaty. Uh, but the court doesn't have a police force that can, you know, kick in President Xi Jinping's door and force China to comply. Uh, the reason international law works generally is because countries don't want to be seen as outlaws. They don't want to deal with all the international criticism and the various opportunity costs that come with being seen as a bad apple in the international system. You know, it makes countries less likely to work with you, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so what makes this disputed area so great in the eyes of China that it's willing to uh, flout the very sort of treaty that it signed? That's willing to risk becoming the kind of pariah that you suggested, uh, you know, results from when you know countries don't follow treaties that they signed. Like, why is this so special to them? When you get right down to it, it's rank nationalism. Um, you hear a lot of arguments about how important this waterway is, and it is. It is arguably the most important waterway for international uh, commercial shipping, uh, probably the second most important when it comes to oil and gas as far as shipping, not, not resources under the sea, although there is plenty of that. But all of that is secondary. These, those are complicating factors. When you get right down to it, uh, mainland China, the Chinese government, has spun a narrative, a, a kind of an alternative history of this area of the South China Sea as having been China since time immemorial, uh, and that it is China's blue water territory in the sense that, that, this, that these nine dashes that were arbitrarily drawn on a map in 1947 are now somehow inviolable. Uh, and that is you know, simply not the case. Uh, that certainly was not the case when that claim was first made by the then nationalist government, the Republic of China, in 1947. Uh, and you can you, all you have to do is look across the strait and see that while Taiwan shares this claim to these random dashes, they have a much more vigorous debate about what they mean than happens in Beijing. Um, so why is this becoming an issue sort of 
now. It, it seems that you know these claims have existed for 50 years, 60, 70 years, actually, as, as you said. Um, why all of a sudden now are there like you know U.S. military uh, uh, ships kind of patrolling the sea in defense of America's allies in in the region? Like, like what's what's happening now that is creating such a, a pressure point? So I think big picture um, is that China, for the first time in the modern era at least, is becoming a real naval power. It has a blue water navy. It is capable of exerting some degree of force uh, in the oceans off its shore. This was not the case when, when China China was a lead negotiator in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, it signed the treaty in the first tranche of, of, of countries in, in the early 90s when the treaty came into effect. Uh, at the time, uh, the all of the uh, protections that were put in for you know the non-Blue Water Navy, for people other than the US, UK, and Russia, they worked for China. Now China is one of those Blue Water Navies, and suddenly the treaty that worked for it 30 and 20 years ago feels constricting. Um, there's also a more proximate cause, which is that under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, you are, states are required to give a UN body called the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf uh, scientific data based on their claim to, to the seabed. Um, this, a 10-year a deadline to do this passed in 2009, and Vietnam and Malaysia both submitted these claims as required by the convention which sparked immediate protests from Beijing uh, because these claims in the South China Sea, all of a sudden they were overlapping with China's nine-dash line claim. Uh, China, as a result, submitted the nine-dash line to the UN, being the first time it officially made this this claim in, a, in an international body. Everybody knew it was there, but they had never made it official. And that started what has now been a seven-year steady escalation in the tensions. Uh, so, and how has this escalation manifest, manifested itself militarily? Uh, it seems that there have been a number of low-level skirmishes uh, involving a few different countries in the region. Yeah, it's th- this has so far remained below the level in this current round uh, of tensions has b- remained below the level of outright use of military force. Um, the last time there was any real clash was 1988 between Chinese and Vietnamese sailors, and before that it was 1974, again between the Chinese and Vietnamese. More recently, it's focused on use of Coast Guard vessels and paramilitary forces, uh, the paramilitary being China's in particular. China has armed uh, these so-called maritime militias, basically fishermen who serve as a naval you know, uh, reserve, National Guard, who go out and, and contest use and control of the waters with uh, the other regional states. Now, this raises real stakes with the U.S. in particular because one of those states, the Philippines, is a treaty ally whom the U.S. is legally and morally bound to protect should its troops or public vessels come under attack. Uh, and so you have these paramilitaries who are basically, what, fishermen with with guns and, and, and ammos uh, who are not because they're sort of not directly tied to the to the China Chinese military. There's some like level of deniability as to what they're doing, sort of provoking um, other governments in the region into responding militarily. In some cases, well, not militarily. What they're mostly doing is going out and harassing uh, other fishermen or oil and gas exploration ships or the coast guards or other law enforcement for, uh, vessels of, of other states. They do occasionally harass 
military, including U.S., there have been various times when they've done things like uh, dangerously maneuver around U.S. ships transiting what China considers its waters. Uh, they are state-directed. I mean, they, they've each, they're each given kind of GPS and, and uh, special radios to talk to nearby Coast Guard forces, and they're paid a subsidy by the Chinese government to not fish, to instead go and do these, these activities to, to enforce Chinese claims. Uh, and then you have China's Coast Guard, which is rapidly growing. It's now certainly the most numerous in the region, and it's building definitely the largest Coast Guard cutters in the world. Uh, and it goes out and it, it bullies and coerces regional states uh, and always maintains that this is happening at the civilian level, that these are Coast Guard or they're fishermen. It's, ne- it's not bringing the People's Liberation Army Navy into the picture. The U.S. Navy is there, and, and its presence seems to be increasing. Like, What does the U.S. hope to accomplish by stationing more naval vessels in the area? And isn't there like a risk that this um, conflict could, could escalate in, in sort of damaging ways? So the U.S. Um, has been, I think, pretty clear about what it, it sees as its interests here. And the first of those is the protection of international law and norms, um, which in this case in particular means this U.N. Convention on Law of the Sea. Which the U.S. More has not broadly, ratified, we should, we should note. We should. Uh, the U.S. has signed, and the U.S. considers a matter of customary international law, and therefore the U.S. abides by, uh, but the Senate had, has not ratified. Um, and, of course, that, that does uh, – it, it helps seed some moral high ground on Washington's part, uh, undoubtedly. But there's also the simple – uh, you know, grade school answer that two wrongs don't make a right, and China does not get to sign agreements and back out of them just because the U.S. did not also sign them. Uh, but setting that issue aside, there is also the question of what kind of international relations writ large are, are supposed to look like in the 21st century. What China is after here is a might-makes-right form of, of international relations in which, because it has the biggest boats and the most people and the biggest guns, it gets to do whatever it wants. Uh, and it has been quite explicit in, in telling Southeast Asian states that, hey, suck it up. We're a big country. You're a little country. This is the way things work. Uh, you know, the rest of the international community spent the better part of the last 75 years post-World War II trying to come up with a international system in which that's no longer the case because we learned hard lessons about what happens when you rely on a might-makes-right form of international relations. So for the U.S., there's a very big-picture question here about what Asia looks like for the rest of this century? And are we prepared to go back to a way of doing business that we thought we had put behind us? Not just us as, as the U.S., but us as the international community writ large. So, so uh, the, these sort of tiny islands um, that have little strategic value do you know, have um, greater significance sort of symbolically than more than anything else. Like, like it seems it's almost the mirror image of what you're talking about with, with China, you know, with, with China, you said it's sort of uh, a symbolic sort of exertion of, of nationalism with the United States. It seems it's like a, a symbolic line in, in the sand uh, in defense of sort of international norms. That's right. And I, well, <clears throat> we, we should be careful about the way we discuss the disputes, because when you talk about the rocks and the reefs, the U.S. has been quite clear that the U.S. takes absolutely no position on, on who owns what island uh, or, or what submerged reef uh, or, or what bit of seabed. Uh, we don't care, uh, we, nor should we. We have no standing in that dispute. The only thing we care about there is that the Chinese don't resort to the use of force. They don't just you know, knock the Filipinos off an island because they can our concern is with the maritime disputes, the bigger issue of how the oceans are managed, how the seabed is managed. And frankly, the, 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 the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and all of the international law that underlies it that 
you know, U.S. merchant marines and telcos and the Navy and everybody else uh, lives by, it could not survive an acceptance of the Chinese claims here. Um, what China's claim basically amounts to is whoever has the biggest boat gets to take the most of the ocean. Uh, and it would not be long if that's the case before you have a race in the Arctic, a race in the Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf. Uh, you know, we, we would go back to the way the oceans used to work uh, in the 50s, 40s, when basically the Soviets, the Brits, and the Americans got to split everything up and coastal states didn't get anything. I guess it's not terribly dissimilar to Russia's uh, aggression in the Crimea, right? In, in the sense that, you know, these sort of established norms of international law are being, um, are being trampled uh, because countries think they can get away with it. I mean, so far, Russia has gotten away with it in, in Crimea. And what's to say that, that China won't get away with it in the South China Sea? Yeah, it's it's really it's a bizarre pseudo parallel because what there, there's kind of two differences, and one actually looks better for China, and one looks worse. You know, in the case of the Crimea or support for paramilitary guerrillas in eastern Ukraine, Russia is clearly engaging in in a level of lethal violence that, to its credit, China has not engaged in the South China Sea to date. I mean, they're, they've they've gotten very close. There have been plenty of. Vietnamese and Filipino fishermen and Coast Guard men and others who have almost died but haven't. And that so by that standard, China looks pretty good. At the same time, uh the Russians are able to dissemble and use a whole lot of, of you know, kind of under the cover of darkness operations here to make it and and throw out a lot of, of, of legal arguments about why they may or may not actually be violating rules and norms. Those arguments are impossible for China. There is the letter of the law that China signed and it is in clear violation. And its only argument is, well, the law doesn't apply to us because we're bigger than you are. That's a very difficult argument to make. Where does this dispute over the South China Sea, or where ought to this this dispute uh, in the South China Sea rank uh, among the spectrum of issues that the U.S. And, and China needs to work through? I mean, should the United States prioritize this dispute over, say, cooperation on, on climate change? or uh, cooperation at the Security Council on, on other issues? Like where ought this stand uh, in, in compared to other bilateral issues between the U.S. and China? It should certainly be in the top three. I mean, what it shares in common with cooperation on climate change, with cooperation in, in the U.N. system, cooperation on cybersecurity, is that it is about what kind of relationship we're ultimately going to have with a rising China. Will China, will a rising China and eventually a great power China be one that supports and reinforces international rules and norms or one that bends and breaks them? Uh, and I, I think we also should, should recognize that we no longer live in a binary system. This isn't the Cold War. Asia is full of middle powers and rising powers from Japan to India to Australia, Indonesia. And for every one of them, this is a top line issue. Uh, you know, they have an almost existential fear of what it'll mean to be living next to a rising China if it feels like it can get away with things like this in the South China Sea. So it is not, this is not, you know, the South China Sea is not a U.S.-China issue. It is an issue between China and everybody else. Uh, well, Greg, thank you so much for your time. This was uh, very interesting and, and maybe timely. Who knows, by the time this is published, that, that decision may be out from the Court of Arbitration. <laughs> That's entirely possible. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. And as always, please do get in touch with me. Send me an email. Uh, if there is a topic you want me to cover, an individual you'd love me to interview, just send it my way. I really do love hearing from you. And I, I love um, following up on your suggestions. It really helps broaden my own perspective, my own horizons. So please do send your suggestions my way. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.